Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stoltz. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Pickett. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Redditch. This is Tony Spackleton. This is Andrew Blahoff. This is Graham Corn. This is Brian Curl. This is Jason Ackermanis. This is Chris McDermott. This is Mike Ellis. This is Kevin Lich. This is Matt Smith. This is Michael Wilson. This is Brendan T. This is Jordan McMahon. This is Brett Burt. This is Matt Shanahan. This is Rupert. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 30 of Amato's Fifth Quarter. I'm your host, Dan, and to celebrate the Big 30, we have got three-time NBL champion and league cult hero Rupert Sapwell joining us tonight on the show. Originally from country Victoria, we delve into Sapper's career, including the early days coming up through the Eastside Melbourne Spectres junior program to making the NBL in 1989 under legendary coach Brian Gorgian. Sapper reminisces on the college days and his experience at Cal Lutheran, which includes a very funny story meeting Emilio Estevez. Returning to the league at the Southeast Melbourne Magic, he recalls the disappointment of being both early and late for both championships in 1992 and 1996 before heading over to Adelaide where he would eventually win three championships. We discuss some great stories and moments such as taking that Hail Mary shot to send the semi-final game of 1999 into overtime as well as the first half heroics of the 2002 Grand Final Series, scoring 18 points in an incredible individual effort. Lastly, we touch on his final years at the Cairns Taipans before hanging up the boots prematurely and also discuss his son Cohen, who is currently playing in the NBL with the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. So from 1998 to 2004, Rupert Sapwell played 359 games for the Eastside Spectres, the Southeast Melbourne Magic, Geelong Supercats, the Adelaide 36ers, and the Cairns Taipans, he scored 2,298 points across his career, 1,161 rebounds, 405 assists, and as I mentioned, he is a three-time NBL champion in 1998, 1999, and 2002. So let's get this episode underway from the Spectres, Magic, 
Supercats, 36s, and Taipans. Let's welcome Rupert Sapwell. Sapwell, he's connected on three already tonight. Not with that, he won't, though. He'll get another opportunity this time. It's Old two extra time. And great dish, Simpson. Sapwell. Rupert just slams him. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter, and today we've got a cult hero of the NBL, and particularly for the Adelaide 36ers, Rupert Sapwell. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast tonight. It is my pleasure. Looking forward to talking old story. <laughs> yes, very much so. So you played your final NBL game back in 2004, so it's already been 18 years now. Since you hung up the boots, what direction has life taken you since that time? What have you been up to, and what are you doing nowadays in 2022? Oh, well, I am the Director of Sport at Trinity College in South Australia. That's one of Australia's largest schools. So I get to look after a sports program and teach Year 10 English. Been there for about to be my 12th year. So that's kind of my first real job after basketball. I spent a bit of time mucking around doing clinics and trying to be a professional coach for five or six years. But I went back and got my Master's in Education and now I'm a teacher. Loving it. So what kind of values and philosophies do you like to instill in your students? I guess what I'm trying to say is what kind of a teacher are you? I am the world's coolest teacher, according to me. But, um, <laughs> uh, look, I, uh, That's the best. I, I, yeah, look, I think um, for me, it's just all about the effort. It's not about the content as much as it is about the effort and the core skills. So if I'm teaching English, it's not about what you know about Shakespeare. It's how you're able to apply basic knowledge into interpreting a text and uh, writing something about it and the, I guess the, the similarity between that and professional sport is you've got to have a core set of skills and be able to apply them in diverse situations so that's what I like to try and explain to my kids is that it's, whether or not you get an A in year 10 English doesn't matter it's about what sort of habits you're starting to build so that you can now transfer those into life after school. How important is sport in terms of a student's education? Like, What can sport teach you in terms of going out to the workforce? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I love the fact that sport is provided by Trinity and it's obviously one of the reasons why I went there. But you know, we, we treat that as a, an extension of the pastoral care system. So whenever I have a, a kid in my basketball team and I have that kid in my English class, I can get a lot more out of that kid in my English class because I have a relationship with him outside of the classroom in a sporting environment. So there's, a, there's an instant respect there, two ways. And, you know, I think that's one of the important things, but sport can teach you everything. I mean, I didn't have a job and, until this job here. So the only skills I learned were through sport. So learning how to set a goal and go about achieving it, working hard every day and taking feedback and, accepting challenges and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but you've got to respond to that and working with team and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you go on for hours about some of the benefits that sport provides and that's what I hope my students and my the kids that I still coach, because I'm still involved uh, a lot in coaching, that they get the idea that you've just got to establish great habits. And once you establish great habits, then, then time is the only thing you need because those habits will eventually result in improvement. And your students there at Trinity, you, uh, you get along well with them? Ah, it's awesome. Trinity is, is sort of our catchment area is the lowest socioeconomic area in South Australia or in yeah, Adelaide. Course, so, yeah. you know, we've got a real diverse student population and that's exactly why I love it because we try and provide a high quality inner city private school education to the kids of the north and we've got awesome facilities. We've got fantastic committed staff. 
and it's a real it's really motivating I'm a little bit idealistic I, I want to change life that's why I go into teaching so I get to do that through creating excellent sports programs and teaching kids and having conversations with them every day yeah, I really appreciate that. And being from the northern suburbs of Adelaide myself, it's really, really inspiring to hear you say those things. Oh, well, so, yeah. I mean, education, they say, is the key to breaking some of those poverty cycles. And we've got some kids who are sort of migrant kids and, and uh, doing it pretty tough at the moment. But they get into that classroom and they put that uniform on and their background doesn't matter anymore. It matters so far as we can connect with them, but it doesn't matter so far as the way we treat them. So they've got an equal opportunity then to... To try and make the most of it. Yeah, absolutely. Sapper, taking you back to the start, originally you're from Victoria, could you maybe give the listeners a bit of an insight into sort of family life and when you started playing basketball? Sure. I was a country boy, so I grew up in, well, my first six years of my life were in far eastern Victoria in Sale. A few good NBL players turned out of there and then uh, went to Moey and it didn't have a, didn't, there wasn't a basketball competition there, so my father started the Moe Junior Basketball Association just so his precious child could have a basketball game and then from there spent seven years there and when I was a teenager moved to Melbourne dad got a job and started playing for the powerful Matawadin Junior program you know I was a bit of an early maturer you know one of those kids that shaves when they're 13 so I had that fair advantage and oh, really? used to make, yeah, make a mockery of all the junior programs so I was a bit of a, an early bloomer as a kid and I was playing NBL when I was 17 so yeah, Brian Gorgian was my coach then, who's Boomer's coach, and now coaching Illawarra, still going strong. And so I had a really good basketball upbringing, but awesome coaches at Nutterwadding, but you know, my NBL coaches were pretty awesome as well, but it started when I was a 17-year-old. And I have this on semi-good authority. I understand originally you wanted to be an architect. Is that true? That is true. I wanted to, well, I was good at drawing, but I also had a bit of a sciencey brain, so I thought, oh, well, what, what do good drawers do who like engineering stuff and I thought oh, architecture would be good but well no one knows this story because I've never told it to anyone but I did work experience at a famous um, Melbourne architecture firm when I was in year 10 and you know they gave me you know, back in those days nothing it was there was no computer-aided drafting it was all on these massive sheets of tracing paper they were and they did these beautiful fine ink drawings on tracing paper and they sent me on a tram down into the city to get these things transferred onto a, a like a regular paper and I took them down, I, and it was, a, it was a wet afternoon, and I jumped off the tram, and the bottom, the top of the tube came off, and these all these intricate architectural drawings came out of the tube and landed in a puddle. And all <laughs> oh, this no. stuff bled, and uh, like months of work were ruined because of this year 10, year 10 work experience student. That's hard. So anyway, I, I, so I, didn't, I don't know how long I wanted to be an architect after that. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I never wanted to go back to architecture to visit that. I'm sweating as I'm telling it to you. So, <laughs> so bloody work experience student. So surely that's not the reason why you chose to pursue basketball over architecture. <laughs> no. You know what? I, I still wanted to be an architect while I was playing basketball because I didn't think I, I, I never, it never crossed my mind that basketball was a career path. It was just something I liked to do. So I, I never planned my life to be a, a basketballer. My, both my parents worked at university, so it was kind of a given that I was going to go to uni. And I did go to uni. I ended up not getting into architecture, luckily, as it turned out. We didn't get the right marks. I did, while I was doing year 12, I was in the NBL, so my ATAR suffered a little bit, but got into industrial design, which is more design stuff. And then when I after a couple of failed years in the NBL, decided to go over to US College, where I played for 
Mike Dunlap, who coached at the 36ers for a couple of years, but also ended up coaching the head, being the head coach at the Charlotte Bobcats. He's now at the Milwaukee Bucks. But he was an awesome coach to play for. But you know, when I was over there, changed my degree and ended up going into journalism. So ended up doing a journalism degree. So you are actually a fully qualified journalist. Well, yeah, it was a cool. There's cool communications over there. So yeah, you can. Yeah, I did all my writing classes, and that, that's kind of why I'm an English teacher now because I've got the, the writing skills. So yeah, I'm a I'm a journo. Oh, I, I, I thought uh, yeah, as my basketball so I became a basketball star, I was just going to work on TV the rest of my life. So that's kind of why I went into journalism. But turned out I actually like writing. <laughs> so originally, you went through the Nunawan Inspectors Junior Program. What was that experience like, and and what are your memories from that time? Well. We didn't lose much. We had an awesome team. I think in our under-16 or under-18, under-16, it might have been under-18 state team, I think there was eight Nutter Wadding players in it. So there was a kid who was playing in our B team at Nutter Wadding who made the state team because he wasn't good enough to make it into our first team. So we were a pretty awesome, powerful unit. I ended up playing all the way through with Tony Rollison. We ended up playing the most NBL games ever, 600-plus games. So we were back to pretty powerful punches, 14-year-olds. So, you know, that was a pretty awesome experience. I mean, we had great coaches all the way through. Barry Barnes was patriarch of that club, and Tom Maher was there at the same time at the women's program, and that Nutter Wadding women's program back in the day in the WNBL was unbeatable. So we just this culture of excellence there. And two years above me was Shane Hill, and a year below me was Jason and Darren Smith. And, you know, we just had this pipeline of very, very good junior players that turned out to be pretty awesome senior players as well. So, yeah, just uh, excellence was normalized there. So it wasn't like we thought we were doing anything new. It was just, you're the Nutter Wadding team, you're supposed to win. So we did. Back then, how did it work in terms of getting onto an actual NBL list? Because it was 1989 when you actually joined the NBL. How did that transition from, I guess, juniors to seniors work? Well, I was just—I was a good junior, you know, and I was sort of had a man's body or almost a man's body, and they'd come out and train, and I did. Really, it was a few of the guys went up to the Institute of Sport, and I did it because I wanted to be an architect. <laughs> so I thought, oh well, I'd rather have a decent education, and that 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 stage, the AIS academic program didn't rate, I don't think so. And I stayed back at um, and went to school there. So you know, during that year, I trained and played a few games in the NBL and I don't know, would have played eight or so games and sat on the bench with them for the rest of them. But it was a good experience and just to get to train with likes of Dean Utah and Shane Froling and Arnie Duncan, who ended up being the Secretary of Education for Barack Obama's regime over in the States and had Wayne Larkins there and Kent Lockhart, who was a great jungle baller at the time and a fantastic personality. And we had a real, just a team of real characters. So, you know, as a 17 year old, it was eyes open. And what was the experience like playing under Gorgian? I've had a few former <clears throat> NBL players on the show have played under him, and, and I'd love to hear your take on, on him and I guess what has made him the most successful coach in this league and, and this country. Well, the first thing that jumps out for me personally, the personal answer, the private answer, is Gorgian is is a really, really great and funny storyteller. So I, re- I just genuinely liked him. You know, I liked hanging around him. It was funny, engaging, and talks to anyone, and he can he's just a very magnetic personality. As far as on the court, just preparation. Incredible physical and particularly defensive preparation. Spent a lot of time on the defense. I remember game, playing five-on-five five games to seven, and they lasting 45 minutes because no one could score at our practices. It was just, a, it was just a, a fist fight. So just incredibly physical practices and he demanded a lot. When it came to games, I was young. And this is the two years, I played for him two years before I went to college. 
went to college for three years, came back and trained with him, then came back and played two years in 94, 95 with the, then the Magic. So I've had a long association with Brian, but I always felt when I got on the court that he was nervous and didn't trust me. So, because he's so competitive and you see him still pacing up and down the floor now, yeah, not yeah, quite as quick as he used to, <laughs> but, you know, and, he, and he's so intense and his body language used to freak me out. So, yeah, I never played my best basketball under Brian because I was always, I wanted to please him so, so badly that, you know, I look around and I'd see his, the muscles in his jaw twitching because he was nervous and, you know, he, he just, yeah, I never felt comfortable on the floor because he never felt comfortable having me on the floor. That's really but, interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that was, in the end, probably terminal for me. He just still saw me as a 17-year-old kid. When I came back from college and was more than capable of playing minutes, but uh, yeah, we were a pretty powerful team, mind you. That 94-95 team, particularly in 95, we finished runners-up. And then the 96 when I left there and went to Geelong, they won it. So, yeah, it was knocking on the door of championships. So I was still coming back from college and relatively young. Probably didn't deserve time, but went to Geelong and sorted anyway. When you say you, you felt like he didn't trust you, why do you think that was? It's just a, it's a nervous, highly anxious, sideline demeanor. That's the way I read it. So, yeah, you know, and, and you'd react to everything that you did. So you can see him. You can he twists up. He grabs his head with his gnarled fingers, and the, and he curls up into a knot, and, and that's you know, and that's on every turnover. So, and I had plenty of them. So you know, like it was. Uh, I, I was nervous playing for him. That's why. So the college experience, as you mentioned, and that's something I've been keen to ask you about. Cal Lutheran for three years and spent time with Mike Dunlap, as you said, who later would, would coach the Thirty Sixes. Can you give us some insight into your time at college and? Just in general, what college life is like? Yeah. At the time that I went, there weren't too many guys who had done it. So Andrew Gaze had gone, maybe Flahoff and, and Luke Longley, but not many others, you know, like it was only a handful. And so it was a bit of an unknown thing back then. Tony Rolton and I, a couple of years earlier, had gone on a recruiting trip and visited some of the big Pac-10 schools. And Tony was getting a lot of love from those. And I was sort of in the sort of mid-major Division One recruiting category and and on the recruiting trip there, one of the ones I remember distinctly was going on a recruiting trip to Pepperdine, which was Brian Gorgian's ex-university. And we got picked up by this fella in this beautiful convertible car with two of the hottest girls you have ever seen. Right. And I, it turned out that the driver was the actor Emilio Estevez. <laughs> and he was driving us around campus and we were in the back of this car with these two gorgeous girl, Tanya Ronson and I, and Pepperdine is overlooking Malibu Beach. It's on a, on a mountain overlooking Malibu Beach. It's the most gorgeous campus you've ever seen. You, you didn't know at the I time, though, what, did you? Well, I, yeah, I did, I did know it was Emilio Estevez. He introduced himself, but uh, yeah, so yes, I did know, but <laughs> uh, I didn't. I wasn't paying attention to him. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. And I can't even remember what the basketball program was like, but the, it was. I, it made an impression because I said, I want to go to Pepperdine. But as it turned out, I, didn't have, I was never going to have a choice because Brian had always organised with his very good friend, Mike Dunlap, that I was going to go to Cal Lutheran. So when I get to Cal Lutheran, Cal Lutheran's a very small Division three school about 45 minutes north of LA. Beautiful campus. The Dallas Cowboys used to do their summer training camps there, so the dorms were pretty nice and the grounds were awesome. And small, only about 3,000 students or so, but homely, had a Dunlap was trying to turn this program into a power and so he was coaching pretty hard and I remember my freshman year I thought I was going to play a lot and I played a total of about 
you know, 60 minutes. So over 30 games, two minutes a game. And I'd played two years of professional basketball beforehand. So I thought I was good enough to play. But I did. he just sat, he buried me and made my life hell for those 12 months. And it was one of those fight or flight situations. You know, I actually had to figure out how, how badly did I want to play because in order for me to have stuck around, I really had to have loved the game. And I had a, a few do I or don't I moments. And I always did. So I was never going to quit. But, you know, then I ended up just devoting myself in the second half of that season to lifting weights and put on 12 kilos of angry muscle because I was just pissed off I wasn't playing and came back next year and had two fantastic years after that. So spent three years over there and met my wife over there and got so many great friends over there. Jason Smith was actually over there in my senior year as well. So Cal Lutheran's had some pretty good Aussie players go through and, and a lot of my teammates ended up coming out as imports and playing in Australia as well. So nice connection with Cal Luke. All right, everyone, it's time for a quick quarter-time break here on A5Q. Recently, I've become an ambassador of Pete and Pedro, the kings of men's hair and beard grooming. The days of the caveman are now over, gentlemen. We all need to keep on top of our hygiene, cleanliness, and style too. Unfortunately, most chemist store products do not achieve this efficiently. So if you want high-quality results, you're going to have to go for high-quality products. Pete and Pedro, established in 2013, offers premium hair, beard, and grooming products and tools for any well-groomed man. These products are actually going to get in there, moisturize, rehydrate, and clean your scalp, hair, and beard thoroughly without putting a hole in your wallet. From shampoos and conditioners to hair gels and putties, beard oils, brushes, combs, and even nail clippers, Pete and Pedro has it all. Now, I would never promote a brand I did not use or trust. Guys, I've been using Pete and Pedro products for the past two years and can confidently say there are no better hair and beard products on the market. Gentlemen, if you are looking to take your hair game to that next level without breaking the bank, you've got to check out Pete and Pedro. And if you use my special discount code, DAMATO10, spelled D-A-M-A-T-O-1-0, you're going to get 10% off your purchase for a limited time only, so get in quick. The link to Pete and Pedro is down in the description below. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get back to the show. After this time in college, you returned to the NBL to play with the Southeast Melbourne Magic. Was that your previous experience with Brian Gorshin that allowed you to get that contract? Yeah, well, one of the deals was because Division Three basketball didn't have scholarships. Like they, you know, they, there was no scholarship there, but I'd have been offered a scholarship at Pepperdine. So I was like, well, how's this going to work? So one of the the ways that they helped me pay for well, the, the Magic helped me pay for my tuition. So the re- arrangement was, we'll help you with the tuition, come back and play for us for a couple of years, and then we'll see what happens after that. So that was the arrangement. So it was, it was like a prearranged marriage. I was supposed to spend a few years over in, at Cal Lutheran and become a, a man and come back and play for the Magic, and that's what happened. So, yeah, love my three years over there and consider you know, my teammates over there and still amongst my closest friends. So very formative years in a young man's life, sort of between 19 and 23. So, yeah, a lot can go on there. I'm so glad I spent it there. And that that's a fa- that Southeast Melbourne Magic team, that's a very famous squad. You had like Tony Ronaldson and Robert Rose and Sam McKinnon, Mike Kelly, Andrew Parkinson. What was it like to share a locker room with some of these guys? Yeah, Chris Anthony was on that team as well. This is a sort of burgeoning rookie trying to figure out his way in the world as well. I mean, it was it was good, and the reason why, I mean, Darren Lucas was on that team as well. There's some magnificent personalities. It was tough. It was not tough as in hard to do. It was tough as in it was a culture of toughness. You know, we just had to, we outworked everyone. We prided ourselves on 
being the character that wears the black hat in in the old westerns. You know, we didn't mind being the bad guys. We wanted to work hard. We wanted to beat you up on the floor. We wanted to outwork you off the floor. So there was just a culture of of extra work. And for me at that time, it was awesome. You know, like I developed pretty professional habits by the time I was come back from college. So for me, it was still about figuring out the craft and and learning off guys like Bruce Bolden and. Darren Perry and a few of those, you know, and just uh, guys that have been around for a while and had some success. So, yeah, that sort of stuff was great for me. And I don't know if Darren Perry was still playing. I'm getting my teams mixed up. But the point is that there was a lot of good veterans there. Mike Kelly was in and out of that squad. He came in full-time in 96. But, you know, a lot of good players. And Tony Rolson was coming up and getting better. And Sam McKinnon was there. So, Sammy Mack was just a, a rookie coming through. And he was going on to a magnificent career as well. So, all these kids were just working hard and what I loved about that magic program was that everyone was fully invested so proud to be part of that really proud to be part of that and didn't know how proud I was to be part of it until I left and uh, that's a story I'm sure we'll talk about yeah why was it that you you left because you went to Geelong the year after sorry in 1996 <laughs> why did you leave the magic well it was just opportunity in the end Ian Stacker who was the assistant coach at the magic at the time got he wanted to get a head coaching job so he got one at Geelong it was just down the road, pretty pretty easy. A lot of my family was from Geelong. I was after a chance. He felt like I could I could play at that level, but because I was on a good team and because I was Captain Nervous when I when I played, <laughs> he felt like I, I needed a different environment as well, as did I. And so he gave me an opportunity down the road there, and really grateful for that because before then I wasn't really sure if I could play. I just had this, you know, this, I've always had this healthy self doubt, and it's kind of what drives you to get better you know that was sort of one of my energy sources but you know I needed to find out if I could play at the NBL level and that year I got to start every game and got to make mistakes and and not look over my shoulder and so my confidence grew exponentially in that year so I was very glad I did it but Geelong wasn't very good we ended up being I don't know six and 22 or something like that and second or third last and yeah so you know we weren't very good and that was the year that Gold Coast Geelong and Hobart all handed in their NBL license at the end of that year. So I went from being part of the Magic and a real good brand in Australian basketball and pretty cool around Melbourne and being very proud to be part of that group to going to Geelong where people would ask me what I do. The second bottom on the NBL ladder, I didn't want to tell them. I was embarrassed. Yeah, right. And yeah. It, was, it was right then that I, even though I was scoring and playing way better than I had at Southeast Melbourne, you know, I was actually embarrassed because of my team success. I realized then that I was actually wired for team success and not personal success. It actually was, professional athletes can say that, but that not even, I don't know how to actually mean it. You know, a lot of them would rather get good stats and be more of the team than be a, a bit player and be on a good team. So, but I found out that after that Geelong year, I, I didn't like losing. I didn't like being on losing teams and being part of a, a tribe was really important to me, a tribe that I was proud of. So I was proud of the work we tried to do at Geelong, but we just didn't have the talent. So it's embarrassing for me and maybe we, if we didn't hand in our license, we could have turned that around, but didn't get a chance to. So yeah, that was a good eye-opener for me and you know, I ended up becoming a lot more comfortable in my own skin coming off the bench and not playing much but as long as I believed in what the team was doing. So actually quite a valuable moment for me in my career when um, I went to Geelong. So when the club announced they weren't going to be around anymore in the NBL, for a player, are you just left on your own? Does someone help you try and find a contract elsewhere? How does that process work? Yeah, well, I thought I was owed 
some money because I signed a three-year contract. And so there weren't too many on multiple-year deals in that Geelong group. So I think there's only three players who were still under contract. Myself, Simon Curl, and Greg Smith ended up having some good years over in Perth. So all three of us thought we were going to be paid something of our contract as sort of compensation for not being there. So based on that, I thought, oh, well, I've got a, I'm half a chance because teams could pay very little and you'd still live because you're still getting money from Geelong. So based on that, uh, Mike Dunlap had, at the end of that 96 season had basically resigned or was, just, was about to resign from his post at the 36ers. The last thing he did was make sure that the 36ers signed me. He encouraged one of his other players to hang the boots up and that created a spot for me. So I never actually got to play for Dunlap in Adelaide, but he was the one who got me there and, and basically set up my career in Adelaide. Now, unbeknownst to me, you know, like I signed a deal for Adelaide in that first year for $8,000 thinking, oh, well, I'll, I'll get money from Geelong because they owe, owe me money. Well, they never they never paid me. <laughs> so I go, to, uh, I go to Adelaide for $8,000 that first year and, and uh, no other money and a, and a wife. And... It was, it was pretty rough for, for a couple of months because we didn't know how we were going to eat. So, That's unbelievable, you know, isn't it? That's it, crazy. Yeah, yeah. you know, that was that were the bad old days. No one got paid superannuation or they said they were, but they didn't. All that stuff is horrible for players back then, but it's gotten a lot better now, of course. And that was about that time that I became the very active in the Players Association. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah right. I just yeah, wanted to make for... sure that the players weren't going to get put through the ringer after that. Because you were the the president for a short while, weren't you? Yeah, I did it for a couple of years. And yeah, that was last year or two in Adelaide and then the two years I played in Cairns. So yeah, that, I, I took that very seriously because yeah, I, I'd seen how things could go bad for players and how really unprotected we were. But also, uh, in fairness to club owners, how, how volatile and fragile the league actually was. So to have, I don't know, calm leadership both in the Players Association and the owners group was pretty imperative at that stage. And, you know, we had some battles for sure, trying to make sure that basic rights for players were looked after. But, yeah, I got to do what I think was some pretty important things at some pretty important times through the Players Association with zero resources. So, yeah, I think we kept it afloat pretty well. So as someone who's been in that position back when the league was struggling a little bit, what does it mean to you to see the league what it is now, probably the third best league in the world behind the NBA and the Euro League. Everything comes down to Larry Kesselman, and anyone who says otherwise hasn't been watching close enough. You know, he was the financial stability that the, the league needed, and he had a vision for it that sort of aligning it closer with the NBA in terms of getting a lot of NBA G League coaches out here and, and having those NBA versus NBL preseason games and creating a lot of hype and an extra import, which is just more razzle-dazzle for the fans and he put a lot of marketing behind it. Like, you know, he turned the whole thing around. So it's nice to see him being rewarded for his vision and his his sacrifice, really. He put a lot of money into it. So whatever Larry wants to do with the league is okay with me as far as I'm concerned because he saved it. And not only did he save it, it is pumping right now. So, yeah, massive influence around the place. I love the idea of the next stars particularly and also our Asian concessions, like you know, having salary cap uh, concessions to get Asian players in, it's just broadened our market. So you don't have to look too far, but Kai Soto getting millions of views on social media and Joe Chi in Phoenix doing the same thing, it's just bringing a ton of eyeballs to the league and sponsors and, and media love that sort of stuff. So I think we're in a stable position now, but do not get comfortable with what I'll say. The players still need to be available to fans 
and uh, be available to media so that we can really capitalise on what now is a, a pretty healthy spotlight. Referee says, fellas, take a break, it's half time. Hey everyone, I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid. Subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now, enough of that. Let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. Going back to 1997, so that was your first season at the 36ers and that was under Dave Claxton. Because of the success of the two titles in 98-99, not really a lot is spoken about the couple of years prior. Did you ever foresee what was to come? Another one of the people that Mike Dunlap recruited was Rupert Sapwell. I think we saw his energy from the the day he started with his club to the day he finished with his club. You know, just brought that emotion and... uh, yeah, sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad, but uh, you know, I think that that probably that type of player has probably missed with this club for a number of years now. Not a chance. I jumped out of the fry pan into the fire <laughs> when it came to Geelong and in that first year in, in with Adelaide. It was when Dunlap left, who was such a forceful leader, it was like someone had opened the gates to the kennels <laughs> and all these stray dogs are running around interesting you know, analogy and uh you know he because he controlled it so well but then all these pent-up energy came out and poor old dave claxton who was a very accomplished coach couldn't control it and tried to but none of those guys who had been there before were really listening they were just they, they didn't want another restricting program and, and dave style was very methodical and um not autocratic i mean i, I really like dave as a person but it was just a, a job too hard for almost anyone coming straight after Mike Dunlap. He was such a forceful leader. So Dave did the best he could with what he had, but you know we had some import discontinuity there and people were just, I think, a little bit listless and, and hadn't quite figured out who they were yet. So talking like about guys like Martin Catalini who hadn't turned into the, the Martin Catalini that he would. You know, we had Leon Trimmingham who was a high-flying, exciting import but couldn't quite find his feet in... That competition. Brett Maher was not quite Brett Maher yet. We didn't have the Kevin Brooks and the Dan Omis of the world. Mark Davis was still good, but he was on the downward trajectory of his career. He was still going to last a few years, but didn't have the best of anything in that 97 year. So I was grateful to have a job, so I, I didn't care. <laughs> I'll make whatever we can there, but you know, I forged a good relationship with someone like John Riley, who was had good pro habits as well, and obviously get to know Brett, who I consider a close friend now. And, Scott Ninnis was there as well. So we had some nice pieces who ended up being legends of the club, but yeah, we didn't have quite the traction on you know, what we needed to be at that stage. Now, I've had a couple of the 36ers boys on here, Kevin Brooks and Brett Maher, and they've spoken very highly of Phil Smythe. Now, of course, Phil comes in at the start of the 98 season, and that's where the back-to-back championships happen. What was your take on Phil Smythe and what was it about him that made him so successful in that role? And I guess when he was appointed coach, could you see things changing at the club instantly? The team was definitely going to change. There was no doubt about that and it needed to. We didn't have the right mix. The chemistry wasn't there. Coach didn't have the the authority that a coach should have. The reality is that Dave Claxton was never sacked. 
All right. If you've got a two-year contract and after one year they say goodbye, you've been sacked. But Dave had a one-year contract. He saw out the year. They were unsuccessful. The club was moving on. I, I think it's, it's wrong to say that the man was sacked. The 36ers had courted Phil to see if he was interested because they'd always wanted the homegrown hero to come back and coach the team. Came down in the end to Bruce Palmer or myself. And uh, in the end I got the nod. And then of course away we went from that moment on. Came in with a, a defensive mindset and then you know, Phil was probably, and Steve were smart enough to roll the ball out and let um, those competitive desires take over. Definitely a players coach. Um, he was very relaxed, uh, didn't stress too much. Um, sort of just threw the ball out there and just said, go out and play. Phil, with that team, uh, was a marriage made in heaven? I'll answer the last question first. The answer is no. I didn't think it was going to change instantly. And it was definitely a different vibe. I mean, you know, it's hard to, to know how conscious Phil was of being the coach that he was. Like, and I mean this in the, with the greatest amount of respect. Like, I knew him as a player and had watched him and admired him as a player as someone who was incredibly diligent Dower almost, multiple defensive player of the year. So on the surface of it, you could be forgiven for thinking that oh, he's another guy who's going to ratchet down the defense and you know, make sure we never have a turnover and only take wide open shit. Like it was, I thought his playing personality was a lot different to his coaching personality, which was very light, very dingy with information. I mean that he didn't overload us with stuff. I'll relay a story now. Phil Smythe used to live next door to Mark Williams, the ex-Port Adelaide coach. Who, There's um, a fun fact. Yeah. So they used to compare notes all the time and struck up a good friendship. And Choco used to come out to the 36 practices every now and then. I'm sure Phil did the same with the power. And he was relaying a story to me about, because he asked Choco, look, how much information do you give your footy players? And Choco said to Phil, oh, look, footy players are so stupid. You can only give them about four facts because they can't remember anything else. And I remember Phil telling me this one thing, oh, yeah, football players are so stupid. Anyway, I went out and our pre-game talk only had two points on the board. <laughs> so, yeah, that tells me that Phil thought basketballs are even dumber. And what I liked about what Phil did was he never overcomplicated. He had a broad, basic structure that we got, we drilled every day. Like, it wasn't even drilled. We played every day. There's a lot of play. And from that, as long as you understood your basic role then you could add flourishes and embellishments out of that so what he did and i've often compared brian to phil particularly through my own eyes and that is brian would train you to death up to a ceiling but not let you go past that ceiling because that was your role whereas phil wouldn't impose a ceiling but then there'd be a lot of unpredictability in that and a lot of, and, and I was a lot calmer on the field because, you know, he was almost asleep during games. You know, he used to lean back with his feet crossed and his arms folded and, and uh, never say anything. He'd very rarely get out of his seat. So when I talked before about Brian making me nervous, Phil was the opposite. Phil allowed me to find my confidence and find my game without trying to orchestrate and micromanage every bit of what I was doing. So I didn't get the level of detail in coaching but what I got was freedom to start thinking. And I remember the first practice I had, and remember I'm, I'm fully, I'm full robot after coming back from Gorgian and Dunlap and Claxton before, like everything was a rule. So you had to do certain things a certain way or you had consequences. Well, there was an on-ball screen at the top of the key and I remember defending it and then stopping the play, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
and looking at Phil and going, what do you want me to do? Like, is there, we needed some sort of coverage. Like, I've always been told what I had to do. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And in that moment, springs started clanking out of my brain and, and, and I, I didn't know what to answer because I'd never been asked before what my opinion was. And so that was indicative of Phil is he, he allowed players and encouraged players to think and put us in situations where we had to think all the time. And I always felt, you know, that I was a smart person, but was never allowed to be a smart basketball player because I was always told exactly what to do and never allowed to think for myself. So when I got to Phil's system, the first time that he allowed me to see what a situation was and understand who the people were involved in that situation and then make a read accordingly. Like there were, if D-Mount comes off the screen, you don't have to show you he, defense can go under because he wasn't a good shooter, but if Derek Rucker did the same thing, that was different coverage. You didn't want to have to tell us five different things about this person, this person, this person. He assumed that we would know because he, he allowed us to see the thing unfolding. So that's what I really liked about Phil was that he gave us freedom to think, freedom to make decisions, and I evolved into a really good screener because that was the thing that I found added value to that team because, you know, we had shooters like Kevin Brooks and Martin Catalini and John Rilly and, and Brett Maher. So you didn't need me to shoot more, but they, you know, who's going to get them open? So I found a, a way to contribute because I was allowed to do things off script. That's a really interesting and deep insight. So Phil was very much a minimalist. Absolutely. Yep. And yeah, by design, he's razor, he's razor sharp, very smart. And I've often asked him this, what made you the coach that you were? And he just goes, I, I just wanted to be a coach that I wanted. <laughs> so he had played for so many coaches and the ones that he enjoyed were the ones that gave players freedom to make choices. That 36ers team as a whole, yourself, Mark, Catalini, Brooks, me, Mark Davis, the culture and camaraderie around the group from what I've seen documentaries and stuff seems very strong. Was it that strong? Yeah, it was. We were all in similar situations in our lives. Young, married couples mostly, about to start families. Yeah, it was just things worked, but it wasn't like we were all cut from the same cloth. I can't imagine two dudes more different than me and Kevin Brooks. <laughs> but we we consider ourselves very good friends because it worked. And uh, he was yeah, everything flourish, and I was everything meat, potatoes, and vanilla ice cream. You know, so those kind of interactions they work. But you, you can't have a team with that's all the same. Yeah, you know, like we had a whole bunch of moving, intricate interesting and unique pieces and they just seemed to fit in they, they fit in well and we had our three or four stars but then what made everything else fit was that those role players were like water they dripped into the and they gushed into those gaps that those stars didn't have so we're able to fill those roles because of those role players who are willing to clag it up with their own set of skills so it allowed it to happen we had played a very loose unorchestrated style, emotion offense, which was hard to guard. That's why the Magic teams and the Titan teams had a hard time guarding us. It's because they were so well-drilled and well-scouted that if you ran a play, they, they would they would tell you where you were supposed to go. That's how well they knew it. So when they played us, we didn't have an offense, really. We just had a, a broad read-and-react motion style that was hard to guard, and we had enough talent to utilize and take advantages when we had them. So as a teacher and a coach, do you believe a strong culture off-court leads the foundation for on-court success? 
Yes, absolutely. Culture is it's a living organism that's kind of like fog. <laughs> you can't grab it, but it's there, and you can feel it, and you can smell it, and you can and you see how it acts on things. So it's a what you do all the time, every day. The way we approached things at the Sixers was games-based, and I've been a big proponent of games-based learning for a while where instead of doing drills where no one's guarding you, do things where someone's guarding you. So it's always a competitive situation. And because our practices were so much gameplay, always competing, we always competed. So it just meant that we honed our competitive instincts. No one wants to lose to your mate, let alone someone you don't like. So because we're all mates, we hated losing to each other. And so practices were really, really competitive. There was no, oh, I'm just going to cruise through this because kids hated losing. And when someone lost, the winner gave it to them. So the sportsman's ego is very fragile. No one wanted to lose in practice. So practice was always on. And consequently, there were very few wasted reps at 36 of practice during those five really successful years. We just, our competitive instincts were, were there every day. And so we did it. And he didn't have a practices. We always felt fresh enough. So in 98, you faced your old club, the Magic, and they're, they're, they were the best team in the competition that season, so only four losses. This team, you swept them in the grand final. Did that come as a surprise? Memorable victory here, and the Adelaide 36ers are the 1998 Mitsubishi Challenge champions, sweeping the Southeast Melbourne Magic in consecutive games. They win it by 28 points, 90-62. I don't we often talk about... I mean, we don't often talk about those championships, we often, but we do talk about the feeling within the group. And you talk to most retired players, they won't be able to relay the events of certain games, but they will be able to quite clearly recall feelings. And the way that team felt to me was that we never felt we were overmatched. We always felt confident and deep belief in what we could do. So when, even though we were playing the Magic, who were very, very good, and what Brian Gorgian is crazy good at is just raising the ceiling, sorry, the floor of his team's ability. So the bad games aren't very bad because they're drilled so well. So they just win games all the time. That's because he doesn't have these lulls during the season. So their awesome season was very awesome, and they were blowing teams out. But towards the end of the season... If I remember correctly, we, we got close and we didn't win, but we were like, oh, hang on. We saw a few chinks there and maybe they're getting a bit tired or, you know, we, we made up these stories about how we were going to beat them. They were too tight. They were too controlled. They didn't have freedom to do what they wanted to do. So we, we always felt like uh, you know, our style, the way we play the game is going to beat them, even though we didn't have much evidence or proof that it was going to happen up until the final. So... By the time we got over there, I think game one was in Adelaide, and we won that one, and we won it well. And you know, but we still had to go back to Melbourne and do something that very few teams had done. So I don't know that we felt extremely confident, but people often relay this story. But on the day of the game, on the shoot around, Georgian had the Magic team doing full contact drills and full sweat and sliding stuff and just working and grinding them. That was part of their mystique, and they were going to work hard, and they were going to beat everyone up. And and then the the happy-go-lucky 36ers come in, and we're bouncing the ball off our foot and taking shots from half court and joking and giggling. And media in attendance were like, 
Sixers are going to get rocked in this game because you know they, they, they're not taking it seriously. But what happened in the game was you know, Magic were too wound up and Sixers came out and played loose and got up early and continued on all the way through and ended up holding, I think, the Magic to the lowest ever grand final score. So defense was on song. They might have been tight, but then momentum's a crazy thing and they played the worst game of their season. We probably played our best at the right time. And what was it like when, obviously, you won and you're scripted in NBL history forever as a champion, but also to beat your old team? What's that emotion like? Yeah, it, it was emotional. It was mainly emotional because two years before, when I was in Geelong, all my mates, well, it goes back further. In 1991, I was train, I was still playing with and training with the Spectres, and then I ended up going on and losing to Perth in that final, but then... The next year when I came back in between college seasons training with them and then they ended up going up and winning it but I wasn't part of that so I see all my mates win and I don't I'm over in college then I came back and we had two years at the Magic and we get close get to the semi-final twice miss out I leave they go all the way out and win the final again so I've, I've missed out twice so in my mind I think I've got winning habits but I haven't won I've been toiling at this well, 1989 was my first year. So nearly 10 years I've been in this league thinking I've got good habits and I haven't won one yet. Why not? Can I do this? And so when we broke through in that 1998 final, for me it was this massive sense of relief and I can distinctly remember sitting in my hotel room on my bed just with a towel and sobbing. Just sobbing through relief, joy, emotion just I was drained like I had didn't sleep a, a wink the night before I'm a, normally a really good sleeper like the anxiety in me of the opportunity to win one was overwhelming so what was the feeling like the feeling was mainly joy relief it was nothing to do with haha I beat Brian it was or, or my mate it was, matter of fact that made that made it work <laughs> I'd actually prefer to have beaten someone else because I saw a lot of my very good friends lose a final and I was part of that and uh, I don't like to contribute to anyone's misery let alone my final my, my mate so it was part of that it was like I was sorry for them but a lot more later for myself that's that's for sure and I just remember thinking that I was going to be an NBL champion for the rest of my life so that was something that no one could take away and I'm in that championship picture and I refer to it every now and then to the kids I coach uh, I bring it up because when you see that championship picture there's no stat line next to all the players. doesn't say how much you've played. doesn't say how many rebounds you've got or how many points you've scored. You're all in that championship photo. And for me, in that entire championship series, I played like three minutes in game one, did nothing, and played six minutes of garbage time in game two, did virtually nothing. Yet I am crying with joy in that photo because I'm so elated to be part of a championship set. And what I try and say to my kids who I coach, doesn't matter what your role is, because in that championship photo, you're all the same. You're all champions. And that's what I loved about that. And that's what I love to be able to relay to kids who worry about their role in court time and feel disappointed that they didn't have much of a role. Mate, when you win, you still get the ring. And no one can take that away from you. And I felt that was a real moment for me. Yeah, that's a brilliant answer. And it's interesting you say you went in your room and, and just laid there and cried. Yeah. I had KB on the show, and he said the exact same thing. He, he sat there with the trophy and just cried. Yeah, KB's journey's cool too, because 
there's a whole lot of things he was expecting to do in his career as well, but he would have loved to have stayed in the NBA longer, but he finds himself in a, at the other end of the earth. <laughs> and if I'm telling you, if I break out of this for a minute, we all thought he was going to get sent home. He was that bad in preseason. Yeah, I've seen that documentary. Shot. Yeah, first. Oh, man. <laughs> and he ended There's up no being... way I thought he was going to laugh. And he ended up being grand final MVP. So, KB, man, what a, what a dude. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so what about the year after? So, 1999, it's a bit of a different story. Finish top and you make, the, obviously, the grand final series again against Victoria Titans. But originally, you were the hero in actually tying the scores of the semi-final series against Wollongong. This is about five seconds to go. You go for a three-pointer, miss... But then you get another opportunity and you send the game into overtime. I'm sure that's one moment you look back on fondly. The ball came out the top of the keyway. Rupert um, had the first shot and missed. He's connected on three already tonight. Not with that he won't though. He'll get another opportunity this time. It's not over. Two extra time. I thought I had no chance after he the way he shot the first one. He had more time on the first one. And he did that, and we're thinking, oh, not again. <laughs> and took us into overtime, and we had all the momentum. First period of overtime, needs to get busy. Got Savile in the air, and It is, because there's not too many moments <laughs> that I actually oh, become a hero. So so, yeah, but that was an interesting one, because against Wollongong, who were playing well, and I think we'd beaten them, what did we had? We'd beaten them in game one up there, but then game two, yeah, they were threatening. We hadn't been used to that, really, and it was uncomfortable. The fact that I was actually on at the end of the game was probably the real story because <laughs> I'm very rarely on at the end of the game. But, you know, I had shot the ball well throughout that final series. So I was I didn't know it at the time, but Phil and Steve clearly did. I was, by the numbers, I was easily the hottest three-point shooter in the team at that time. Bear in mind, we had Brett Maher and Martin Catalini and Kevin Brooks and a whole bunch of more qualified guys to take the shot. But, you know, the fact that I was on, and he actually, Phil actually drew the play up for me. So, yeah, my brain almost fell out of my mouth when I heard that in the timeout. But, yeah, the ball comes to me. I take a shot. CJ's close enough, too close, and I throw up the brick of all bricks. And the way I saw it, it hit the side of the backboard. Didn't even get, didn't even hit the ring. Hit the side of the backboard, somehow careened back to David Stiff. CJ said, Sapwell's not going to take that second shot. So he ran away and guarded someone else. And the Stiffy season I'm the only one left open probably for a reason throws the ball back out to me I see I see the backboard still shaking from my first brick <laughs> and yeah and it goes in so you know oh thank god for second chances I've been asking for second chances all my life finally I got one do you remember that moment when you took that first shot and missed what was going through your head I was freaking out as what was happening I was like I can't believe it I'm actually open I'm gonna take this shot ah! you know, who knows what's going on. not much probably but yeah, I think the good thing is that in the heat of battle, things happen so quickly. You haven't got time to overthink. So those two things happen so quickly that, yeah, got lucky on that second one. You know, went in and he went into overtime and won it. But could have gone differently for for me as well. So glad for that second opportunity. Infinitely grateful for Stiffy for letting me redeem myself. So when you, you get to the grand final series, thanks to your shot, and you win game one in Melbourne. Game two's in Adelaide, but you lose. Did you guys become a little bit complacent for game two? Brett Maher, this is off. Here's Sapple from the same spot that he sent the game into overtime last week. He punches the air with the line. The Adelaide 36ers have triumphed here in game one of the 99 Grand Final Series. They are now just one win away from back-to-back titles. To beat um, 
the Titans on their home court uh, in a grand final is a huge win. We now thought we had the wood on this team and we took our foot off the accelerator, which I think may have been to our detriment when we came to game two. I tell you what, I packed my clothes that night to go out for the championship win and my wife Trina said, don't do that. I said, we're going to win. And that's the sort of cockiness that we had. We walk into our home gym and see all the celebration stuff ready to go. And that just adds to our confidence. I still remember Kevin Brooks bringing in the world's biggest champagne bottle into the change rooms in game two. I paid about 500 bucks for it, right? And I said, we're going to enjoy this after the game. I remember running out and that being the loudest um, I'd ever seen. My, I got this rush of adrenaline that made my fingers numb for about uh, four, next four or five minutes in the warm-up. Look up to the flag during the national anthem and you see the balloons uh, already in nets waiting to be let down. Um, you, know, you, can, you know, you can be forgiven for getting ahead of yourself. I think so. We were, we were on a roll. I've heard the story told before, but in game two, when we have the chance to win it, the club, they have to, but they, they put all the balloons up in the rafters. You know, if we win it, they're going to let all the balloons yeah, yeah, down. Yeah, so they're ready to go, yeah. Yeah, they're ready to go. So that's sort of symbolic of we think we're going to win this and karma. The basketball gods got to it. And yeah, we choked. Titans were so good, you know, like... The, the 1998 Magic team, which was so good, added D-Mac and Paul Maley, two NBL Hall of Famers, to their team. So, I don't know, they might have been the most stacked team in NBL history. They were so talented. Pretty awesome, and, yeah. Yeah, they were, you know. And so, But we were rolling, so we, we didn't feel any fear. But as soon as you give a team with that much talent... Uh, a little bit of a sniff, they, they took it and alright, that was like them slapping us back down and going, hey, not so easy, not so quick, Sunshine. So they gave us a, a lesson in humility in that game too and Tony Rolson played awesome and D-Mac was everywhere and Ben Pepper had a really good series. So those final series were yeah, absolutely awesome. So yeah, we get a, another chance to take care of business in game three and finally do. So you scored, I think it was 14 points in game three of 99. And I know you've said before it's about the team and everything, but compared to 98 when you didn't play a whole lot, did it mean anything more that you had a bit more game time and a bit more of an impact on the actual result? Only taken G being played by the Victoria Titans as the clock winds its way down on the 1999 Mitsubishi Challenge Series. And Martin Catalini, who has 19 points a game high, holds his finger in the air. Adelaide have won the 1999 Mitsubishi Challenge Grand Final in its first summer season. And only the fourth team in 21 years for back-to-back championship crowns. Congratulations to the 36ers. Yeah, it does. I'm very lucky I get to compare some championships. So I still think my first championship was the best one because for me it was that breakthrough and that emotional release and all that. The second one, yeah, like it was nice to have a, a, an impact in the series and, and particularly in the grand final game. And yeah, I had a good second half. Things were starting to sort of get a bit wobbly, but I was on the on the right end of some you know, nice passes and got some free throws in the three or so. I can't remember what exactly what happened, but that sort of stuff was, yeah, it was good to have a, an impact. And I think any athlete wants to feel like they're useful. Up to a certain point, when you're a training player and you, and you do all your best work during the week, there is a certain use, but everyone wants to be able to do it when it matters. And I think if I look back on my career, I had this knack of doing things in big games. Like, 
I don't know what, what I would have been, but I would have been twice my average in finals, I reckon. So my average was pretty anemic. I reckon six points and three rebounds or something. But those numbers doubled in finals, and I don't know what I attribute it to, but it was lucky it happened. You speak about playing well in finals, and as we go a few years later, the 2002 championship is probably what you're most fondly remembered for. Game three, you scored 18 points in the first half. Amazing individual display. Um, in what ended up being a pretty convincing win against the West Sydney Razorbacks. From an individual perspective, do you think that was the highlight of your career? Probably was in terms of the moment. I didn't score very heavily many times, and so to score 18 points and a half was unusual. I mentioned before I was a journalist. In the first day of journalist school, they ask you, what is news? And the analogy they come up with is, when a dog bites a man, that's not news. But when a man bites a dog, that's news. That's unusual, right? So man bites dog is news. That's what they tell you. Yeah. And so that's why it was newsworthy that I did well because that's not what I normally do. Brett Maher had 18 points in that first half as well, finished with 30 and nearly a triple-double. How does he not become the news story on that day? But because I popped out of nowhere and hit 18 points in the first half, that's the news. So, yeah, and I got hot, but I also have played a lot of my good games against West Sydney because Simon Dwight would guard me and he would hang by the basket and block everyone's shots. So I knew I was going to get room. So I go into those series against West Sydney knowing that I'm going to have to be a factor, but... I was lucky enough that they went in because the game two, I was garbage. I reckon I was 0 for 3 in 7 minutes and 2 turnovers or something. So it doesn't always happen, but I was lucky it happened at the right time. I've heard this quote a few times. You make your name in the home and away season, but you make your fame in the playoffs. And you always stood up in finals. Does that come as a real sense of pride to you? Yeah, if you want, if you're going to have a chance to do one or the other, may as well be the, in the finals for sure. How lucky am I that I had part of an awesome team that got to make some finals. Yeah, it was you look back on those things so fondly and how many of the awesome players I, I played with. And I think, and I try to explain it to myself or try to explain it to my kids, I always played at a pace, like a, a pace that was suitable to finals. But I played that the whole year. I didn't play very much, you know, I'd have averaged 15 minutes a game. I can run flat out and go for everything for 15 minutes. So I had trained myself over years to play at a certain pace. Most people play a lot. They'll, they'll go through the motions in the regular season and then they'll try and play faster in the playoff because they feel like they have to step it up. Whereas I had no step up. I was just always at that pace. So it felt normal to me. I couldn't be more aroused during the finals because I didn't have a, a, another level of arousal. <laughs> I was always hyper. So I think for me, it didn't seem like much of a of a transition to finals basketball. I just, it was just another game. I mean that in the, in the way that what my energy levels were like. So, yeah, I think that's probably, if I could explain it, that'd be the way I'd explain it. Before we get into the final stretch of this incredible chat, we need to take a final break for three-quarter time here on A5Q. Now, as I'm sure you're all aware, I love podcasting. It really is an enjoyable ride and a chance for me to share my passion to the world. So why don't you do the same? 
Whether it be a sports podcast like mine, a comedy podcast, an educational podcast, a movie, TV show, or gaming podcast, or even if you just want to get a few friends together for a weekly chat, it doesn't matter what your podcast is about. What matters is setting it up through Podbean. Podbean is the best and most certainly the easiest way to start a podcast. And the best part of it is it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. If you hit up my special link at www.podbean.com slash A5Q, you'll have the choice of starting your brand new podcast for as little as $9 per month on an annual plan. Now that is an unbelievable price considering you'll get unlimited storage, beautiful podcast themes, you'll be able to map your own domain, comprehensive podcast stats and podcast monetization. Now, guys, I tried to set up my podcast with a few other websites and just couldn't work it out. It was way too complicated, but Podbean was just so simple, so easy to use, and it produced the results for me. So definitely, if you've been thinking about starting your own podcast, but you've got no idea how to go about it, visit www.podbean.com slash A5Q and get started with Podbean today to join the Pod family. Or if it's easier, the link will be in the description below. But in the meantime, let's get back to the show. You become a three-time NBL champion in 2002. That was actually your final game for the 36ers. You moved on to Cairns uh, to play two seasons under Guy Malloy. What prompted that move? Well, interesting story. So about eight weeks before the end of the 2002 season, you know, I've got a three-year-old and a heavily pregnant wife, and I'm out of contract. And I go to Phil and I go, what are the chances of me being re-signed for next year. I was playing okay. It wasn't great. I didn't like contract years. I was pretty anxious that way. So maybe I was average stats, but he told me no, I wasn't coming back. He'd already made up his mind that I wasn't going to come back to the team. And my worst fear was realized. Oh, geez, I'm going to be out of a job and I'm going to have two kids and no job. But I think back on that and how important that was and that Phil didn't have to tell me that, he was, that I wasn't going to be part of that team next year. He could have strung me along and then not sign me but he told me because he saw my situation he's like hey I just keep the opportunity to be able to talk to other teams and, and do stuff while everything's still live and as it turned out because I stopped worrying about getting signed because I knew I wasn't I just all this, all this pressure just drained from me I ended up having the best eight weeks of my basketball career so not only did I get re-signed but I got re-signed for twice the amount of money that I got at Adelaide up in Cairns so you know, working out perfectly. It's amazing how well, things perfectly. work. Cause you, liked it. Yeah, yeah, you had yeah. that sort of weight off your shoulders to know what was going to happen. Yeah, and not many coaches would do that. Very grateful to Phil for giving me that freedom. So, yeah, I was happy that happened and you would have loved to have re-signed with the Sixers and we'd set some roots, bought a house, all that sort of stuff and would have loved to have stayed. But the fact that we got to live up in Cairns and have that experience was awesome and I was really proud of the work we did up in Cairns too. And what was the Cairns experience like, of course, because you've had all this success at Adelaide, who, I mean, the 36ers, are, they are a big club here in South Australia, and then Cairns Taipans are one of the smaller NBL clubs, even today they are one of the smaller clubs. What was that experience like over there? I loved it. My wife was from Hawaii, so she loved the tropics. That was fun being up there for that. And The kids, they got to do nature things, because <laughs> there's lots of cool things to do up there, but the basketball experience is great too, because... The year 2002, Cairns finished last. I got, was recruited up there along with a couple of others. And in two years, we took them from last to winning our first final, beat the Perth Wildcats in the final series and knocked them out. So Hard task um, to do, beat the Wildcats in finals. Absolutely, yeah. So you know, we were able to turn that around. And I signed for three years up there, but 
Guy Malloy had different plans after my second year up there and so released me from my contract and I went on my way and they went in a different direction. Unfortunately, <laughs> they ended up finishing out of the finals the next year and Guy lost his job. But, you know, in those two years that I was up there, we, we turned that franchise around and gave it some respect. So I was pretty proud of the work we did there. And end of my second year there, Darnell Mee had come back from Europe and um, ended up training and playing with the Taipans for the last part. And, yeah, we, we turned that franchise around. And then two or three years later, Alan Black's taken close to the finals and then Aaron Fern takes over and we had a really good run. So they were off and running after that. But I was very proud of the work we did up there, turning that franchise around. So how did it all end for you? Well, it was... I was coming back from my third year. We were about two weeks away from the start of the pre-season. You know, I was just up in the weight room and Guy Malloy brought me in and said, oh, I'd like you to take a job in the office. I'm like, why? I've got a playing contract. But he, unbeknownst to me, had signed another young kid in my position and was hoping that I was taking that, that job. But I didn't want to. I wanted to keep playing. So, unfortunately, at that stage of the pre-season, all the teams are full. So... If I had had that information three months earlier, then uh, you know, I would have had a chance to get on another roster, but all the rosters were full. So that was kind of it for me. It was a forced retirement, but that's kind of how it ends for someone like me and as a bench player. I don't get to walk out on my own terms and kind of the way my career went. So I was lucky enough to play for a long time, but when I look at the list of NBL games played record holders, you know, all the players that have played more than 350 games have been starters for most of their career pretty much had their way with it but yeah somehow I managed to hang on as a bench player so I'm pretty proud of that. Was that disappointing how your career ended? Yeah it was but I had a, a year payout so I got paid out for a year and then that was a blessing because it enabled me to start another part of my life and transition out. You know, I was 32 so it wasn't a bad innings and my body was still good so you know I can still do stuff now that a lot of my peers can't because I didn't spend those extra two years thrashing my body around so I would have liked to have done that I had some goals academically as well I would have liked to have completed a psych degree in there or a master's in something just to complete my education and be ready for the work world but as far as the playing goes did I miss it I don't know I went straight into coaching so I felt like I could be an NBL coach at, at some stage so yeah I didn't mind later on that that happened so yeah no hard feelings Look Sapper just as we are just about to close up you were known throughout your career as a great three-point shooter, particularly off the glass. Where did you develop that skill from? <laughs> it is quirky, isn't it? You know, when I was under 10s, we had, I had a wonderful coach named Lois Olsen, and everything was fundamental. Jump stop, step through, shoot it off the backboard on a layup, everything was fundamental. And so when you're shooting from the block, the low block, you get a little angle on the glass, and you shoot it off the glass. Take a step back, you shoot it off the glass. Why all of a sudden, if I take one step back from a two-pointer to a three-pointer, did I, would I change the angle of my shot? That's the way I always thought about it. So no, that, whenever that, I shoot so it true. Wing, so true. Yeah. So that's how my three-point bank shot developed. And and I, I don't know, maybe I locked in on a square target better than a round target. But as soon as I could see the corner of that backboard, that was my happy place. And I felt like I could shoot it at a lot of different angles and, and come off that backboard sweetly and, and uh, go in so yeah you have go-to spots that wing was my go-to spot and I don't know I, I didn't see the sense in changing my angle once I got to the three-point line so but no one ever did it and what we used to like <laughs> was if I hit a three-point shot on an import who didn't know what I did you know, a new guy 
he'd turn around, give his coach, and go, you know, what the hell is that? And the coach would go, yeah, you know, that guy does those things. So <laughs> we used to have a chuckle, we'd have a chuckle about the, the new guys finding out that I was uh, used to shoot bank threes. And, hey, I got a lot of horse victories for those shots too, so uh, still be in good stead. Oh, that's awesome. Just briefly, your son Cohen is now playing in the NBL for South East Melbourne Phoenix. What's it like for you as a father to watch your son playing in the same league that you did? It's, of course, it's proud. But, you know, if he had been a an engineer who worked his ass off for six years in school to get the right marks and then told again through four or five years of uni to become an engineer, I'd be just as proud. What I really love about uh, what he's done and what my youngest son Kalani's doing as well is that they've set themselves a goal and they worked really hard and they're working really hard and they established awesome habits and they did something every single day and they just inched towards it. He was never a AIS scholarship holder or a chosen one in any of the state programs or anything like that. He was a late developer, so just managed to sneak in on teams because he could shoot it. But in the last sort of three, four years, his body's really changed. So he's turned into a, an NBL athlete, and that was the biggest difference. He always had skills, but just kept toiling away and managed to sneak onto the bottom of a very talented Southeast Melbourne Phoenix roster. And you know, he's an elite shooter and an elite defender, so I think he's going to stick for a while and just needs the, the right opportunity to come his way. He's in the right environment, learning off Ryan Brockoff and, and Cameron Glidden and Kyle Adlin and a few of those guys who are great pros. So he's in a really good learning environment. So, yeah, we're, naturally we're hopeful that he gets the opportunity, but it's up to him and he's got great habits. So I think that's the thing I'm most proud of is his work because he's been cut from a lot of teams and didn't make a lot of teams and got overlooked and never lost his confidence, never lost his belief and kept on working for it. So that's a universal skill and he'll be able to use that for the rest of his life no matter what he did. Yeah, beautiful answer. Just as we are about to close up now, Sapper, I've got three last questions for you and I always ask these three questions at the end of the episode. In your entire career, for any club in the NBL, who is the best coach you ever played under and why? Who's the best player you ever played with and why? And who's the best player you ever played against and why? Oh, so I had awesome coaches and everyone was awesome for their own reason. Like to have Brian Gorge and Mike Dunlap and Stacker, great teachers of the game. They were my first three important coaches. They, I couldn't have got a better grounding, but Phil Smythe for me was the, the one that gave me the biggest belief in myself and uh, allowed me to sort of morph into the player I became. So Phil was the most significant for me. Best player I ever played with. That's like choosing flavours of ice cream. How can you do that? <laughs> so I would say Brett Maher was awesome and Darnell Me for some of the stuff that he did and the way he went about it. They were the two probably the most significant teammates for me in terms of things I just shake my head and go, wow, it's awesome. So, yeah, don't make me choose. <laughs> That'll do. But I had through that 36s group, yeah, pretty awesome. I didn't get to see the best of other teammates, but it's been three or four awesome years with some of those guys and uh, yeah I'd say Brett Maher and Dan on me can't choose between those two best player ever played against so in the NBL there's a fellow called Chris Williams who unfortunately died recently but he was a important Sydney Kings in the in 2003 I think the first year the Sydney Kings won it and I felt like I could guard most players I was a defensive player I used to think defense and I used to have a plan for most but I didn't have, a plan, didn't have a plan for him. He was so quick and so accurate and, and strong. And I felt like I, I'm, I'm out of my depth here. The one guy that I felt like I could guard. 
but I played against Yao Ming. You know, we had a tour of China in the 2002-36 year and played against Yao Ming. That was pretty awesome. You know, I had an opportunity right at the very start of my career. George Gervin came out as a, as a sort of a 40-year-old to, with a few of his mates to come out and play some games. So I got to play against the Iceman like this. And, yeah, some nice stories that I can't even remember about. And 36ers went over to Milan to play in the World Club Championship against best teams around the world. Like, that was an awesome experience. So, yeah, but I think if the uh, best player I played against in, in NBL was Chris Williams, Sydney Kings. Yeah, and he was the grand final MVP that year for, for Sydney Kings. He was everything. He was the league MVP. I don't know, whatever. He could have put any award on him. He would have, you know, people would have gone, yeah, fair enough. You know, like he was just, uh, he was next level. So, and then, you know, he was only there for one year and then he went somewhere else with him and gleaning over in Europe somewhere. Rupert Sapwell, it's been awesome to have you on the show. I really do appreciate your time and I wish you all the best in everything you're doing now at Trinity College and with family. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, pleasure as always. Thanks for letting an old fella tell old stories. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time.